Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Chuck here. Uh, before we get going with the show, I want to plug a little podcast appearance that I made, especially for uh, the old movie crushers. I was on a movie podcast called Too Scary Didn't Watch, and it is a lot of fun. And the basis of the episode basically is uh, three very, very funny women who one of them likes to watch horror movies and the other two hate to watch horror movies. So one of them watches them and then tells the other two about it. And it's really a lot of fun. It's become one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to. And uh, I reached out to them and they were kind enough to have me on as a guest. So you get to hear me uh, completely recap the horror movie or kind of uh, edge of your seat thriller slash horror movie, Don't Breathe. And I had a really great time uh, on the show. They're wonderful. They're funny. And uh, we had a lot of lot of laughs. So uh, check out and just, you know, subscribe is what I say. Listen to Too Scary, Didn't Watch. And uh, check out my episode on the movie Don't Breathe, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. Um, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know, the Anthropology Edition. That's right. And I would argue our one, two, three, maybe fourth Maya adjacent podcast. There's no need to argue, Chuck. <laughs> well, we did the Mayan calendar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, world ending in 2012. I we mean, I think we that. did that back then, right? Yeah. It was right around that. that. That's the benefits of having a show run this long. Actually, I think um, we did that in like 2010. That's how I Yeah, well, that's what I mean, we but were. leading up to. Right, yeah. Yeah, not after the fact, because that would be very <laughs> us. <laughs> right. uh, and then, of course, we did our, our episode where we traveled to Guatemala, sort of like our two-part travel diary. Sure, totes. Where Jerry spoke, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Guatemala is partially where the Mayan people lived and live. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should just start out by, since I said lived and live, dispelling some myths. Well, hold on. We did another one last December, I believe. Uh, did climate cause the fall of the Maya civilization? Oh, right. So this is the fifth one. Easily. Maybe maybe a hundredth. I'm not sure. I lost count since you were talking. Well, I was inspired because, as you know, I just recently took a trip to uh, Quintana Roo in Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, saw some Mayan temples. And so there's a couple of episodes coming out of that trip because it was just one of those inspiring trips where you're, you know, when you go someplace where you're, your endorphins are firing and your brain is doing things that usually doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Those are the best trips. You know, you come back wanting to eat different foods and talk about different things. And uh, I love those trips. Wearing caftans. <laughs> I didn't get any clothes, but we did get Ruby a couple of uh, caftans? really pretty traditional Mexican dresses. Oh, that's cute. Does she like them? She loves them because awesome. they are colorful and have flowers embroidered and stuff totally. like that. Totally. So um, there are a lot of different groups that lived over the millennia in um, Mexico and Central America. Um, But the Maya stand out in particular for a number of reasons. Um, They had one of the most developed alphabets um, or systems of writing ever in the, the ancient history of Central America or Mesoamerica. Yeah. They came up with zero independently. Almost my hero. Almost, almost a thousand years before it was introduced to Europe, not yep. not the, Europe didn't come up with it themselves. Like it was introduced, but the the Mayans figured it out independently. They yep. uh, also had some really top notch calendars, which we talked about in that one episode, um, and that were based on um, really advanced astronomical observations. So they were, and then not to mention, they also have the romance of having like lost civilizations, like entire cities swallowed up by the jungle and lost for a thousand or more years. Yeah. Those are, that's like so Mayan, you know? So um, for all those reasons and more, they definitely kind of just stand out in a a field of pretty interesting cultures, uh, if I may say so. Yeah, I think that's why we keep going back to them. They just fascinate me mm-hmm. uh, the more I read about them. And uh, I, I, at some point, I've heard it's a decent movie, but it's uh, not the most accurate. But uh, I was reminded today of the Mel Gibson-directed film, Apocalypto. Man, it's almost a snuff film, dude. I saw the one human sacrifice scene, and I'm like, I oh, can't really? handle this. It's awful. It's super um, realistic. Yeah. It's way too he's a, casual. He's a graphic director. Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, he's super obsessed with violence. It's crazy. Have you seen We Were Heroes? No, but well, I thought he did Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if he did or not. I know he definitely did We Were Heroes about the early, no, early uh, days. We Were Heroes? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. It was the early days of Vietnam, and it's like brains blowing out onto the camera lens in front of you. I think Hacksaw Ridge was supposed to be really violent, too. Yeah. It's just occurred to me. I don't know if I've seen any Mel Gibson-directed film. Uh, We Were Heroes. No, We Were Soldiers. One of the two. It's that. Once We're Soldiers? We Were Soldiers? Um, Meet Me in St. Louis, I think. (laughs) That's the name of it. No, no, no. Lethal Weapon 2. Super violent. (laughs) Uh, but some of the myths we can dispel. First of all, I kind of teased one out that um, the Maya are still around. They, it's not like right. you know people talk about the fall of the Mayan civilization. It's not like a meteor came down mm-hmm. and did the dinosaur treatment on them. There are still Maya today, and you know some would argue that their civilization civilization didn't really collapse so much as just became sort of a. <laughs> a suburban sprawl in a way. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them speak some of these ancient languages and tongues that have been around for a very long time. They carry on a lot of the ancient traditions that were passed down. So yeah, it's definitely inaccurate to say that the Mayan civilization just went away, just disappeared. It just dispersed instead. 
That's right. Uh, it is also incorrect to just say the Maya were this one sort of unified historic people that we can talk about as being one thing. Right. Um, we're talking about a lot of different, like dozens and dozens of cities and city-states um, that, you know, they had a lot in common, sure, and they did trade with each other and did some of the same things, but they also were at war with each other almost constantly mm-hmm. um, between themselves. And you, you can't just, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years, like there are different, there are different very specific periods of Mayan culture, and depending on when you're talking about, some cities may be bigger than others, others may be um, not not quite as large yet. So you can't really just say, I believe uh, Libya helped us with this one, I think. Yes. Uh, she got from uh, a website called Mexicolor, with an E. They said, just saying the Maya is trying to invent a name for like the French, the Italian, the Spanish, and the Romanian people all as one. It's just... They, are, they were not just one people. No, and they didn't see themselves as one people. They probably saw themselves as members or citizens of their particular city-state. But the reason that we today and researchers and archaeologists who you know investigated the Maya to begin with considered them one group is for two reasons. One, they inhabited a really specific um, geographical location. It yeah. covered southern Mexico, Guatemala, parts of Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Belize. And um, Yucatan Peninsula, yes, specifically. Yeah. Um, so, and like in, in that area, not kind of spread out like that was the Maya's area. Um, and then number two, even though they considered themselves separate um, and, and not like members of the same whole group that inhabited that area, they exchanged, like you said, they traded, they exchanged ideas, um, scientific breakthroughs, art. Um, so their their culture to those of us on the outside looks like one homogenous, cohesive culture when really it was a bunch of different cultures influencing one another and creating kind of this meta culture that we consider the Maya today. Right. Um, if you know, I talked about the different periods that we can talk about. The first one was the pre-classic period. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about each of these, but the classic period is going to be most of the focus. That's sort of the golden age of the Maya. Uh, <laughs> But in the pre-classic period, this is where they started to um, get involved in agriculture. Uh, they started to um, cultivate through burning land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as we covered in the episode on, um, you know, how they went away, I, I believe we talked about uh, burning crops as being, you know, a lot of people think that was significantly bad for them mm-hmm. uh, in the long run. Um, overpopulation, to be sure, and, and eventual uh, food shortage when they had a food surplus for so long. Mm-hmm. But they started out, uh, as always, with the three sisters growing those beans and uh, maize and squash. And then the middle pre-classic, we're talking about 1,000 to 300, they started spreading out a little bit uh, uh, in that territory, uh, the same territory that would eventually be like the classic uh, most robust Mayan cultures. Sure. Um, and they also, at that time, in the, the middle pre-classic, about 2,300 years ago, that's when they started to to build, like, architecture. Not yeah. the stuff that you would see in the classical period, but it was, like, the beginning of it, literally the foundation, because they actually started, they built um, new structures over old structures. But this is kind of where it was born. 
Yeah, and all this, if it sounds like it's happening very organically, is because it did. Mm-hmm. Um, Livia is, you know, points out that these these city centers and these city states, it wasn't some, and we we know now more than we ever have before. We got a lot of stuff wrong over the years, um, science and archaeology, but we've we're pretty squared away. At least, uh, you know, we're up to date on the latest. Uh, like truths about the Maya, but they, I think they used to think they were so organized, they would plan out these cities, but they really sort of grew organically because they were good at what they did and they could really farm the heck out of the land and support a lot of people. So it just sort of happened organically. I mean, they clearly were a culture that knew a good idea when they saw it. So like an elevated highway, um, a causeway that's wide and, and can afford a bunch of traffic between one city state to another, that's just a good idea. So if yeah. you build one, that others the other city states can say what other city states can we link to, and before you know it, basically every city state, and I think there were four great ones in total at the height of of the Maya classical period, are connected by causeways. So of course today it looks like, surely this was planned. Some great right. centralized government planned this out. They must have been amazing. No, there's another way to do it. It's almost like an emergent property of a hive mind. A bunch of people know a good mm-hmm. idea when they see it and they put it to use. And over time, it just builds up and up and up and becomes so complex that it looks to people that come later like it c- couldn't have possibly happened organically, even though it did. That's right. Uh, and we've talked a little bit before about the size of these, uh, I guess, I mean, people have called them empires, but these civilizations. Mm-hmm. Um, there were about 40 cities in total. I mean, you said four. Within that, there were all these smaller cities. Uh, each of these, and they're not sure, so the, the number ends up being a, a bit of a swing, but 5,000 to 50,000 people and total maybe up to 15 million people. Uh, they've done studies that found, I believe it was like double the uh, double the size of medieval England at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and farly more densely populated uh, than medieval England, like legitimate cities. Yeah. Did I say four? I, I meant to say 40. Oh, did you say four? No, I, I think you said I said four. No, no, no. You did say four, but I thought you just meant there were four main areas. No, so I, I might have misunderstood I meant 40, you. There were f- at least 40 great cities. That was what I was oh. trying to say. I think you said four, but yeah, we'll go Got with 40. wrong. <laughs> One of the things that made the cities so striking, though, Chuck, was... Um, the, the elaborate architecture, you know? Yeah. And because it was all made from, well, not all of it, but a lot of it was made from cut limestone blocks, which, by the way, they used harder stones to cut the limestone because in the area that the Maya um, occupied, there's no metals that are easily accessible. Um, there were also no draft animals. So they did everything with, like, stones, basically, and mm-hmm. with human labor, not with animal labor. So... Um, what they did is all the more impressive when you realize that because they built these huge temples and huge pyramids that are just amazingly well-designed and well-built, so so much so that they still survive today. But then on top of it, when you start to investigate the way that they're oriented, you're like, oh my goodness, each of these staircases is completely in line with each of the four cardinal directions. How do they do that? Um, or if you stand on this one temple at Chichen Itza and you look at the other three temples, depending on whether it's a solstice or an equinox, the other temples are in line with the rising sun. How did they Pretty do that? Cool. So, yeah. So in addition to just the visual amazement that you get, um, the, the kind of intellectual amazement of how they were designed and, and planned is even more impressive. Yeah. And you can stand on these <clears> things because 
they're still there. Uh, a lot of the civilization is gone now, but you know, if you go down to the Yucatan Peninsula and you visit Tulum or someplace like that, I highly encourage you to take one of those tours and go see these temples. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, well, we're not exactly sure what the, they were. We think that they're temples. Uh, sometimes they're called palaces, but it's pretty clear from like the size of the rooms that they weren't for uh, the the hierarchy. You know, it was a very um, very hierarchical society. Yes. But they don't think like that the kings lived in these temples that are still these pyramids that are standing. It was probably for ceremonies. Uh, this may have been where uh, I guess we have to talk some about the uh, ritual sacrifice. This is where a lot of that took place as well. Yeah, particularly the temples and the the pyramids. Um, but they they uh, yeah we should talk about sacrifice at some point in time. Um, yeah, we'll pepper it in. Okay, but the, the the something you talked about I want to kind of flesh out a little more is the um, hierarchical society. Yeah. So again, there wasn't some one great central government that organized all these city states. In some of the city states, not all. There was a strong centralized government, a leader, a yeah. priestly class, a divine king or something who ruled over that city state with an iron fist and by divine right um, and could say, I'm going to kill your kid um, to sacrifice them for a, a bountiful harvest or for more rain or something like that. It was that that level of control, that level of hierarchy. And it was really rigid. But again, to kind of underscore how each of these cities was kind of independent in its own kind of thing, not all of them had a hierarchical structure like that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's one reason they were, it seemed like I saw a a couple of like documentary, documentary, (laughs) documentary videos. Hi, I am new to earth. (laughs) I'm new to YouTube. Uh, it seemed like they were always at war with one another. And I think that um, I think that was just sort of the nature of the hierarchy of these places. Like, I feel like these the, it just seems like these kings were always at war with another king over something. Yeah. And apparently the first the first researchers who started to investigate the uh, Maya, I think it started in 1830 the 1830s when westerners when europeans first started to well i don't want to say that because the spanish were aware of them when say western europeans let's include spain say um you are new to earth too northern europeans uh, how about the english the english okay (laughs) first stumbled upon you know mayan cities um Mm -hmm. from 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 that point on for a very long time researchers just assumed that the mayans were this really advanced intelligent peaceful uh culture right um and it wasn't until later that we started to find more and more things like fortresses and battlements um defensive walls that were like oh yeah. actually there was a, a a lot of warfare and then as we got to know more and more and cracked their language um we're like oh wow this is a deeply violent group of of cultures that that really killed a lot of one another in some really brutal ways too right uh but we did mention they also uh traded with one another so it wasn't like there was just a guarantee that their closest neighbor they were going to do battle with um they they traded all kinds of things they traded uh it's it's an area very rich in jade apparently Mm -hmm. uh obsidian um obviously things that are a little more commonplace like salt uh and and seeds and grains and things like that they would trade but copper and jade and obsidian were sort of the money uh, things that you would trade. Right. 
and they traded, like you said at the beginning, they traded uh, ideas and cultural ideas, and they traded art with one another. Uh, they had a lot of influence, and this was in one of the documentary videos <laughs> that I saw on online. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Olmec civilization was somewhat was a civilization that they um, really, really borrowed from. Yeah, or not borrowed from, but were influenced by, I guess. Yeah, the Olmec I was reading are considered one of six pristine civilizations, meaning they just grew up out of whole cloth. Um, wow. They weren't influenced by other civilizations or other groups. Um, one of how many? Six, including six? I think the um, like Sumerians. They, mm-hmm. I think maybe the Egyptians. I, I can't remember a few others. Um, but the Olmec are considered, yeah, the Olmec are considered a pristine civilization, which is wow, pretty cool. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I say we take a break and come back and we'll talk about the religion and the science of the Maya. What do you think about that, Chuck? Let's do it. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned uh, religion and mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that now. Uh, previous <laughs> to the break, you mentioned the priestly class. Yeah. Uh, from what I saw, the priestly class was basically the highest class under the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I guess in a lot of uh, older civilizations, that's sort of the case. Is the religious leaders were uh, had so much influence and were just under the king and had a lot of influence on the king as well. Uh, but there was that priestly class who organized these ceremonies and these rituals. Uh, they were the ones who developed the mathematical system and the astronomy that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And they were able to accomplish some pretty amazing things, uh, not only with math in their alphabet, but with astronomy. Uh, they were able to accurately predict solar eclipses. Yeah. And this is in, I mean, I guess depending on which period you're talking about, like thousands of years ago. Well, I think we've entered the classic period, which I think was from the second century to the ninth or tenth century CE. Okay, so that's when most of the astronomy and the math and sort of sciences were advanced. Yeah, but yes, but again, for comparison, at this time, England is in smack in the middle of the Dark Ages. Right. Um, while the the Maya priestly class are predicting solar eclipses and can accurately track <laughs> Venus's transit around the sun, um, yeah. So they they use this information, this astronomical information, their ability to use math, um, their their like extensive calendars. They use that for those rituals and for those um, those like the to basically reinforce their priestliness. Like what we would recognize yeah. as mathematicians and astronomers today. Imagine if, if you know, an astronomer said, uh, you know, this comet is going to pass by Earth in two days. It's going to be amazing. And also the sun god will be um, driving it like a, a chariot. So everybody right. <laughs> don't leave your house that day. Like it's right. kind like, of, yeah. You're really- you're really on the money on one part of that. <laughs> right. But, I mean, that that's kind of like what their priestly class did. They were right, but the interpretation was wildly different from, you know, what we interpret things as today. Yeah. Um, they had a solar calendar. And, again, we did a whole episode on the Mayan calendar. But it was very advanced for the time. Uh, they had 18 months on their calendar, uh, 20 days per month with a five-day unlucky period each month, which is pretty funny. I love that. No, I think that was uh, every year there was a five-day unlucky period. 
Oh, it was once a year, not once a month. I think so. I think so. I think I didn't do the math, Chuck. I'm no Mayan Priestley <laughs> class guy. Uh, and then they also had uh, an overlapping calendar, a 260 day uh, sacred calendar. This had 13 cycles and 20 named days. And as we all know, in 2012, it was the minds never said that the world was going to end in 2012. This was just internet hokum basically because their calendar was ending yeah it wasn't like made up entirely from scratch like the Olmec civilization it was based on like a misinterpretation a misreading uh an exaggeration yeah. like in 2012 the mayan long count calendar like reset it was a thing and to the maya that may have in- included some sort of apocalyptic thing but um it wasn't like the end of the world. It was like a resetting of the yeah. world order as we understand it. And that got turned into The World is Ending, starring John Cusack. <laughs> should we talk about the creation story? I think we should. It's pretty cool. Uh, there were a couple of sacred texts that survived. As we'll see later, uh, a lot of their written history uh, was burned by Christian missionaries who said, you don't need that stuff anymore. You're going to be like us, mm-hmm. uh, very sadly. But there are some texts uh, and codices that survived, and uh, a couple of them, the Popol Vuh and the Chilam Balam, nice. uh, had these creation stories wherein uh, there was a god of wind and sky called Huracan. Hurricane, sound mm-hmm. familiar? Yeah. And there was a Seba tree planted on the earth uh, to create space between the earth and sky for people and animals and plants and things to grow. And humans came third after the plants and animals. But in the text, it said that they were made out of mud. Sound familiar? Uh, And they could speak but could not think or move. (laughs) Which sounds like a lot of modern-day Americans. Yeah, all they could say is, please kill me. Uh, so the god said, no, that's not good. So they destroyed them with water. Then they tried again and created a man from wood and woman from reeds. And they were sort of like functional humans, evidently, but were immortal and didn't have souls. Zombies. So the god said, well, that's no good. Yeah. And they got him with so boiling they, water, right? Yeah, that, that'll do if you're made of, uh, well, I guess I thought if they were made of mud, that would do. But I guess wood and reeds, boiling water would in their minds, it would kill them. It sounds more torturous, but it didn't kill all of them because some people survived. Some of the reed and wood people turned into monkeys. Also very interesting. Yes. In terms of like evolutionary theory. Uh, and then finally, they got it right in their minds. They created uh, what we think of modern humans uh, in their creation story from maize, dough, and their own blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the gods thought, hey, they're a little too scary smart so they might threaten us one day but we won't destroy them we will just cloud their minds and their eyes and make them not as smart right and that's their creation story yeah it's pretty interesting yeah um they they had a pantheon of gods um much like the greeks had um that were dedicated to like a sky god a rain god um there were like more than one creator god um it depends on what period of the Maya civilization you're talking about, which one was more important than another. One might be a little more important to one city-state than another. Um, So they kind of just jockeyed in and out of importance, but they were still generally the same pantheon. And again, in addition to art 
and um, and um, like other ideas, their religion was traded amongst themselves and with outside groups as well. That's right. Like they would trade gods, right? Yeah, like I'll trade you a rookie chawl for a '88 tops Kukulkan. <laughs> uh, this part, this next part, really sort of uh, gets me going intellectually. Is when we talk about their system of agriculture. Uh, they were great, great farmers. Um, you know, some say too great and that they over farmed. I guess that would make them not great farmers because they didn't <laughs> know about over farming. Yeah. But they were really good at making things grow. And and depending on where you were, which Mayan culture you were talking about, uh, it was it could be very, very dry. Uh, if you weren't near water, if you were inland and they have your know, rainy season and your dry season, they have to contend with that dry season. And they did so by building these huge underwater cisterns that would collect enough water to basically last them about half of a year. Yeah. Yeah. So like every built structure was engineered so that anytime it rained during the rainy season, that water got channeled right into that underground cistern. And it wasn't just carved out of limestone, Chuck. I mean, it was. They carved it out of the bedrock and then covered it up. But they also covered it with stucco so that it would be waterproof and could hold enough water to keep everybody going for the rest of the year. So cool. Uh, they had um, aqueducts in one of the cities. Mm -hmm. uh, I would pronounce that Palenque? Palenque. Palenque? Mm-hmm. Okay. You say that as if you know for sure. I've heard the word before, Palenque. Plus, it's oh, fun. Okay. It's more fun to say than Palenque. That sounds like <laughs> a, a internet challenge from, you know, several <laughs> years ago. The link challenge. You like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's really. I, I don't know. I've never done an internet challenge. So I always think it's funny when they pop up. Yeah. Uh, so the Palink challenge went away, but the Palinke, they had a system of aqueducts, and they actually, I mean, in my mind, I don't know what the Chinese were doing. It seems like they invented everything, but in my mind, they created water pressure. They're the first people I heard of to create water pressure. Right, using like a drop in elevation and a narrow conduit that forced yeah, the amazing. water through. Yeah, and then little kids would just dance and play in front of it. <laughs> no, that wastes the water. Um, there's also like great use of filtration too, which is amazing if you think about it. But at Tikal, um, they use zeolite and quartz. Zeolite's kind of like a clay-like silicate um, and quartz is quartz. Um, the thing is, is neither one of those um, are found at Tikal. Um, they're found kind of far away. So they were purposefully put in their water reservoirs. Uh, and the, the, the reason why that's so impressive is because zeolite and quartz are used today to filter uh, microbes out of water. Amazing. Yeah, and they figured it out. They, they think probably they just realized that the natural aquifer around the, the zeolite quarry tasted better, was clearer, that kind yeah. of thing. So they just quarried the zeolite and moved it over to their own reservoir. It's possible. It's a pretty good guess. We just don't know for sure how they got the idea. We just know they didn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of it seems like just brilliant innovation, and a lot of it seems like just good common sense. It, yeah, it you really know? does. They knew a good idea when they saw one. That's right. Uh, they also had irrigation canals. Uh, they had tiered agriculture fields that mm -hmm. were cut into the hills, so it would prevent erosion, it would prevent flooding, and water would just sort of drain down like a beautiful champagne fountain. Yeah, I mean, that's would... terraced farming, and that's been like 
invented multiple times by different cultures independently. Yeah. It's just, again, a really good idea. A wonderful idea. They also invented <laughs> or at least employed raised beds yeah. for farming. Uh, so if they're, you know, they wanted to keep things a little drier, they would build a raised beds and then you could still have wildlife underneath, aquatic wildlife. Yeah, I think they were actually doing aquaculture too. Like they were raising the fish and the turtles in that the swampy area next to that, next to the raised beds. Wonderful idea. So they also did what you mentioned before, slash and burn. It's called milpa. It's where you take a section of rainforest, cut cut it down, leave the vegetation and the trees in place and burn them there. And then the resulting ash covers the dirt and you plant directly into the ashy dirt. You don't till the soil. And it's really, really good at fertilizing um, an area without any kind of input, certainly no fossil fuel-based industrial inputs. And it keeps the land going for about two to three years. But then after that, it gets depleted, which means that you have to take that plot of land and leave it fallow for about 15 years. So if you do some pretty quick back-of-the-envelope math, you have to have a tremendous amount of land to, to cycle through so that you can leave each spot fallow for about 15 years. You either need yeah. a lot of land or very low population. And that's one of the reasons why some people say, and must have, we must have covered it in our episode from back in December, but yeah. some people say that's what led to the decline of the Maya. They, they over-farmed, they over-slashed and burned. Their population got too big to support through slash and burn agriculture because it just requires too much land because of the fallow period you have to have. Was that December 2021? I believe so. I mean, the years are running together these days, it's, so it's possible. It's really it crazy. I would have guessed that was seven years ago. I'm pretty sure it was December 2021. <laughs> Another thing that they did was sports ball. Yeah. I don't know what it is, Chuck, but I, talking about this particular game has always annoyed me. Why? I don't know. I don't know, but I've always hated this game. Because we talked about it before? We have, yeah. And plus, I mean, it's a big... Anytime you talk about the Maya, you can't not talk about it, you know? Why would it annoy you? I don't know. <laughs> Annoys you that they did it? It's just an annoying game, I feel like. Okay. Well, they had a ball game uh, called either Pock to Pock or Pocket Talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's sort of... Like, I'm of the belief that most of these sports games are pretty similar. Soccer, hockey, basketball. Right. American football, mm -hmm. they, they're they all sort of the same, which is they sort of simulate war. Like, here's our side, here's your side. We're going to try and go on your side and do something, and you're going to try and come to our side and do something, and we're both going to try and prevent one another from doing that thing, whether right. it's putting a puck in a net or a soccer ball in a net or a, a basketball in a hoop or a football in the end zone. And this may or may it, not take place during a 10-cent beer night, too. <laughs> uh, but they had a game all long-winded way of saying they had sort of the proto version of this game uh, where they have been able to sort of reconstruct how it might have been played uh, except they did not use these a little rubber ball uh, that they used by mixing latex with juice from a morning glory vine Pretty neat. Uh, to make it bouncier and they wore padding like you would in football American football that's news to me I didn't realize that they wore padding does that annoy you it's okay. I'm neutral okay. on that. <laughs> uh, and then the key here with this game, though, what makes it so different is uh, they didn't use their hands or their feet. They would use their 
mainly their hips, I think, but mm-hmm. uh, their elbows and their knees as well to move this ball until you, uh, in a very Kidditch-like move, Quidditch-like move, mm-hmm. throw it through two stone rings. You almost just got us torn to pieces. I'm really glad you Kidditch? corrected yourself. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's the I mean, it's Quidditch, right? Yeah, I believe so. Well, it's close. Kidditch, Quidditch. So maybe it's the use of the hips. It just seems really painful, and mm-hmm. that they should have been like, "This really hurts. Let's try our hands or our feet instead." <laughs> It seems intuitive to use hand and feet. Yeah, and not hips. There's no other game in the history of games, as far as I know, and I know a lot about games um, that use the hips. Um, but it's twister. They, they did, or maybe golf. It's all in the hips. Hmm. I've been playing a lot of golf again lately. Oh, you have? Yeah, I got back into it after like a 20 year layoff. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Are you still yeah. loving it? I'm having fun. It's a lot of fun. That's good way good. to spend some time with friends. That's what Tiger Woods says. <laughs> and he also says, must dominate. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, let's take a break and let's come back and talk about the uh, supposed fall of the civilization right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Burning stuff with Joshua Okay, so we talked about all these different periods, um, and the end of the ninth century is typically considered the end of the Maya classical period, what you referred to earlier as the golden age of the Maya. And for a lot of people, that equates with the fall of the Maya civilization. That was it. That's when their cities were abandoned and reclaimed by the jungle. That's when their ideas and thoughts and languages and culture were lost. That was that was when the Maya became a lost civilization. And like we said at the outset, that's just not true. I mean, the Maya are still around today. But in addition to it being more of a dispersal than a fall, um, that didn't happen all at once to all of the Maya city, depending on where you were in the Maya territory, some of those cities not only kept on going just fine, new ones were developed like way after this this supposed fall of the Maya civilization. Yeah, which I, that's really interesting to me. Uh, in fact, we get Maya, I don't think we said, from Mayapan, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the last ones, and that was founded in 1263. Yeah. So this was after the supposed you know, fall of the Mayans in the classic period. Right. Um, one of them, in fact, the last one to fall, uh, which is in modern day Guatemala today, was almost in the 18th century. It was in 1697 yeah. uh, when the Spanish finally took the, the final um, Mayan city, basically. And we mentioned the Spanish because they were, uh, they were the, the big reason why things stopped. It wasn't, I mean, there was a dispersal for sure, but when the Spanish came and the Christian missionaries came is when uh, things got really ugly and they basically said, we're going to squash your culture. Mm-hmm. We're going to take away your language. We're going to burn your written history. And you're going to be like us now. Right. You're going to be Roman Catholic and you're going to like it. Um, and as we learned in Guatemala, um, the, the modern Maya uh, and the Maya from this colonial period um, got into syncretism which is where they took their original traditional um, religion 
and meshed it with the forced upon them Roman Catholicism so -hmm. that they associated saints with specific deities like um, Mashimo, the the Maya deity who helped me quit smoking. Yeah, good old Mashimo. Yeah, he was associated with Saint Simon. Right. And you would go to him and say, I have this vice I need to I need to get rid of. Please help me, Mashimo. And you give him a cigarette and some, I think, manioc root wine or liquor and mm-hmm. uh, light a candle and he would take care of you. I forgot all about Mashimo. Oh, how could you? That was one Seems of the like neatest things I've ever ago. done. Yeah, that was yeah. a long time ago. And uh, we obviously shout out our friends at Coed, mm-hmm. uh, the charity organization that we've been working with for years uh, who got us down there to begin with. Yep. So just go check out their their work and uh, sponsor a kid. Give them uh, access to books and education. Yep. Coeduc.org, right? Yeah, go check them out. Um, so you said that the uh, Spanish missionaries, the Franciscans in particular, um, were the ones who came in after the, the leading tip of the spear, the conquistadors, who would come in, slaughter a bunch of people, subjugate them, and then the Franciscans would come in and rebuild them in the European style and right. foist you know, um, the Spanish language on them, Roman Catholicism on them, um, and that the Maya kind of adapted with syncretism, right? But one of the big ways you, you get rid of somebody's culture is getting rid of their writing. Yeah. And I think you said it earlier, but the Franciscans burned almost all, almost every book, as far as we know, except four of those codices were burned, destroyed, by Spanish missionaries in the colonial period when they were trying to subjugate and convert the Maya, um, which is extraordinarily sad because it just makes you wonder how much history and and, uh, cosmological thought was just totally lost forever through that. Yeah, I mean, they wrote a lot of books, uh, and those codices were made uh, from fig tree bark, and they were folded accordion style. And uh, you can, there's some of that stuff that's that's carved into monuments that you can still see. Yeah. Uh, some of it's painted on walls and pottery that you can still see that survive. But just those four uh, survived. And these were basically post, just after the end of the classic period. So there is good stuff in there about, you know, prophecies and medicine and their history and astronomy and science or religious rituals and stuff like that. Uh, but again, like you said, I mean, like who knows how much we would understand if if they hadn't have just torched everything. Well, so and then the surviving stuff, um, the surviving writing, the hieroglyphics, that Mayan um, system of writing that was so developed, um, it wasn't cracked until uh, not that many years ago. I think the 21st century. And there's a really great Nova um, episode on PBS called Cracking the Maya Code. And it's just almost like this thriller where like a group of like linguists got together and um, figured out, you know, what it meant. And without a Rosetta Stone, nothing like that. They they just had to make conclusions and assumptions and um, they finally figured it out. But um, one of the other things that happened to one of the remaining kind of bits of written information was on the hieroglyphic stairway at Copan, another great city. One of the temples, Chuck, was a, a pyramid, and it had the staircase, and the staircase was made of limestone blocks with hieroglyphics carved into it that told the story. But unfortunately, the first archaeologists who excavated it back in 1930 disassembled the staircase to examine it, and when they put it back together again, 
I guess they realized that they hadn't noted where it was originally, so they put it out of order. <laughs> so whatever it was trying to say is lost to history forever, thanks to 1930s archaeologists. And they said, it says, there's a lady who knows all that glitters is gold. And as she winds on down the road, and they're like, no, no, it's all out of order. There's something about a bustle in your hedgerow. That doesn't make yeah. any sense. <laughs> it still doesn't make sense. Not really. Uh, the um, colonial period uh, that came much, much later, uh, the indigenous languages were um, discouraged is one way to say it, kind of squashed is another way. Uh, and then finally in the 1970s and 80s, there was a revival uh, of the Maya in Guatemala uh, to basically say, you know, our language is important, our cultural uh, rights as indigenous people are important, and they made some concessions. Uh, they, they're not officially, I uh, believe Guatemala still has not accepted uh, any of the indigenous languages as official co-languages uh, like it does with Spanish, but uh, they are... Uh, acknowledged they're part of the national identity mm -hmm. in Guatemala and uh, believe that you can receive public services in your native language, in yeah. your indigenous tongue. Even though they're not official languages, they still guarantee that. Yeah, and That's really something, and that also actually comes after a genocide. There was a, a genocide against the Maya by the Guatemalan army, which presumed that the, the typical indigenous Maya in Guatemala supported the guerrillas in the late 70s, early 80s. And something like 200,000 Maya, indigenous Maya, were killed uh, in 19, between 1980 and 1983. And another one and a half million um, just disappeared and are presumed to have been killed. And they keep finding like mass graves that, that definitely underscore the fact that they were killed. So almost two million people were killed in three years in tiny little Guatemala. Um, so, so much so that like there was a substantial hit to the Maya population in that country. Um, but they, they managed mm. to hang on and stay around and, and, and maintain links to their, you know, traditions still. Yeah. I mean, if you go there today, you will see uh, traditional Mayan people. Sometimes uh, the women might be wearing to the traditional clothing, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, eat some of that food is my advice. <laughs> Sit down with some of them. Have a conversation if you can. Sure. Uh, I guess we should finish up with a little bit about human sacrifice. Sure, why not? <laughs> Instead of that lovely note. Yeah. So there's a great article uh, in The Economist called Who Did the Maya Sacrifice? And there was another one in uh, Reuters uh, called Ancient Maya Sacrifice Boys, Not Virgin Girls, mm -hmm. colon, Study. Uh, but there was this, you know, notion that, I mean, sacrifice happened in... Uh, numerous ways there was bloodletting sometimes there was uh the ball game that we spoke of a lot of times they would play the game against another city state and someone in that city state would die if they lost and be sacrificed mm -hmm. uh sometimes they would sacrifice uh children like you spoke of uh they would uh throw them in the cenotes which are the uh, i swam in them uh, when i was in mexico and it's an amazing experience but um, to know that that kind of thing happened there is a little sobering, to say the least. Yeah. But the uh, the underground, you know, pools uh, in these caves, and uh, there's no way getting around it. You know, they sacrifice people, and so they, you know, they definitely did it with uh, when at war they would a lot of times sacrifice uh, someone from another city state to sort of appease the gods and not their own. 
but they thought maybe we can find out um, who these people were. And there's a lot of gobbledygooky science that we won't get into and how they did it, but they looked at their at these uh, at teeth. And from examining the teeth and the isotopic ratios, they're able to basically determine where people came from depending on uh, the enamel of their teeth. And what they ended up finding out was what they called it was anywhere and everywhere were who these people were. Mm. There were half of them were locals. Uh, about a quarter were from some distance. Uh, others were from hundreds of kilometers away. And they were, uh, you know, there were children there were boys, there were girls, there were adults. It was sort of all over the map. So I think they were hoping for sort of like a tidy little answer there, and they did not get one. No, but didn't they say that it was ultimately mostly younger boys, like teenage boys? Well, that was uh, that was the Reuters study, and that was um, when they would specifically, I think, throw children in the cenotes mm-hmm. to call for rain. I think they used to think that those were... Uh, they sacrificed virgin girls, and what they found out that was because I think they had jade jewelry and things like right, that. Right. Uh, but they said no. They found out that they were in fact mostly young boys. Right. And they would throw them in the cenotes because those were considered uh, portals to the underworld, and they were sacrificing not just for rain but also just to keep things going. Like they they believed that the gods were nourished by human blood, and by sacrificing humans, the sun would come up, crops would grow night would come and turn into day again um like the world would just keep functioning as a as a matter of nourishing the gods with human blood yeah i mean it's definitely something to keep in mind when uh you go to tour and swim in a cenote it's a you should always sort of respectfully uh think about that kind of stuff i think yeah and don't look down don't look down you're down already don't look up that's where the bats are did you go scuba diving in it no, uh, I, we went on a great tour. It ended up being just the three of us and this one other woman, uh, this very nice lady from Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were the only ones down there. And our guide was this awesome dude. And, uh, you know, you just, it's like caving. You go deeper and deeper and deeper, right. uh, about in knee deep in water, this cool, beautiful, perfectly clear water with blind fish all around you. Uh, and then you get to the <laughs> sort of the, the swimming hole part. Uh, there are other cenotes down there that, you can scuba dive in and zip line in and inner tube and there's tons and tons of people. But this one was way off the beaten path and very quiet and very private and uh, more of a historical educational type of tour. It was great. Yeah. A little known fact that Maya invented the zip line so that they could <laughs> zip line into St. Notes. But he gave us these um, waterproof flashlights, <clears throat> you know, to see our way around. Mm-hmm. And I was floating. He gave us about 30 minutes just to sort of swim and float in this one main swimming cavern uh and it's they electrified it down there they had these colored lights it was really spectacular oh, cool but i was laying there and i was floating and i saw these big sort of look like portals just these little indentations in the ceiling above me and i was like oh i wonder what's in those <laughs> and i turned on the light and it was like 20 bats just hovered and sort of shaking and shivering together oh wow uh and you there is no more natural instinct than to get out from under that hole right like a bat's going to just fall on you. Like, no, they fly. I kind of, <laughs> but your instinct is like every time one of us walked under one was like, Ooh, I don't want to be under that. Right. Yeah. It was very cool though. Yeah. That is cool, man. Uh, you got anything else? 
I got nothing else. Well, Chuck's got nothing else. I don't have anything else. And since uh, that's the case, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this our second kidney uh, donation email. We did one in our uh, last episode we just recorded. And this one is from a kidney donor, and it's pretty great. Uh, He discovered our podcast six years ago and said about seven years ago, I had the opportunity to sign up to donate my kidney to a stranger. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a universal donor. Our blood type was a match, and the ride started. It took uh, blood work every two weeks for four months to get cleared. I met the recipient and his family. They had two young kids, so it made my decision that much easier, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, Some interesting facts. Uh, the, remain, uh, the remaining kidney can grow up to 20% larger to make up for the missing friend. Mm-hmm. Cool. I don't think we said that. No, I didn't cool. know that. Uh, I was also curious at the time how they decided uh, which one to take. They scoop out the one that has the longest ureter because it makes for an easier transplant. Wow. Uh, here's another one. Uh, one part that was not mentioned is the six-inch incision at the waistline where the surgeon reaches in almost elbow deep. Oh to grab the kidney. That is, wow. Isn't that something? Yes. Hopefully uh, with very, very clean arms. <laughs> he said he made the mistake to watch a video, a surgery video, after he had it done. Yeah. It's probably, probably best to not do order. it before. <laughs> uh, he said, now that I'm a living donor, I'll be at the top of the waiting list if I ever needing a kidney. Not sure if this is the case everywhere, but it would help others, uh, if it would help others that are on the fence about it to know that. Uh, and our seven-year transplant er- anniversary is in May, so I had to write in and give kudos for the great episode, and that is uh, from Shane Green in uh, Candia, New Hampshire. And Shane, we usually don't do shout-outs, but I think the rule now is if you give a kidney, <laughs> then you get some shout-outs, because Shane Definitely. wrote back after I said he was going to be on Listener Mail and said, uh, please shout-out the Dartmouth-Hitchcock transplant team. Okay. Uh, please shout out Donate Life, which helped pay uh, for Shane's bills while he was out for five weeks. Very nice. Uh, and most importantly, my family that backed me up. Uh, my lovely wife, Bree, and my daughter, Maeve. We are all listeners, and our anniversary is coming up soon. So That's fantastic. That's from Shane Green. He sent a picture of him and Big Mo, his transplant uh, friend. He was six foot six. <laughs> uh, that's why they call him Big Mo. And uh, it's just a great story. It's amazing you did that, Shane. Yeah, Shane, way to go. You definitely get shouts out anytime for that. Just write in next time. You're like, I'm in the mood for a shout out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want, I had, an, I had a nice cheesesteak the other day. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, if you want to be in touch with us like Shane did and let us know something amazing you did, we might give you a shout out too. Who knows? You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.